Hi! Women Leaders has grown into the age of sponsorship and this episode is sponsored by the Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union. This important German foundation is affiliated with the National Green Party and the European Alliance 90 for Greens. With a strong commitment to ecology, gender democracy, equal rights for minorities and empowering migrants, they advocate for a world that values equality. The Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union represents the foundation in Brussels, actively shaping the future of the European project and its global role. For those interested in EU politics and policies, they're your go-to resource for information and engagement. And they are, of course, on Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. All links are attached to the short notes of this podcast. Many thanks to the Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union for supporting our podcast, which helps us bring ever more inspiring conversations with women leaders. All opinions expressed in this podcast reflect the views of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union. and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. The rapid fall of Afghanistan in August 2021 remains a stark memory of failure and collapse, both Afghan and international failure and collapse. Events unfolded rapidly, notably between the 15th of August, when the Taliban entered Kabul, and the early hours of August 31st, when the last US soldier left. The scenes of chaos at the airport, of people running desperately after planes taxiing away on the runway, are still vivid in the minds of many. And the tragedy has continued ever since, with an oppressive regime imposed by the Taliban that is so extreme against women that UN Women notes it is rightly and widely considered gender apartheid. The poverty, desperation and lack of hope are reminiscent of the first Taliban period between 1996 and 2001, but made much worse now by climate change. To better understand the events of collapse and try and look ahead to a better future, we have with us two outstanding women with personal experience and insights into the situation of women in Afghanistan, as indeed the state as a whole. Dr. Habiba Sarabi is a former Minister of Women's Affairs in Afghanistan, though that hardly does justice to her many accomplishments that include being a hematologist, the first woman to be a governor of a province in Afghanistan, and a member of the former government negotiating team with the Taliban. Whether is Dr. Tabasam Aksu, Senior Advisor at the Asia Foundation, and prior to that, Director of Policy and Research at the Foundation, where she oversaw many surveys and projects related to Afghanistan and spent several years there. Welcome, ladies, and as ever, let us start with each of you telling us a bit about your background. Habiba. So this is the second time that I'm getting out from my homeland. Uh, for the first time of uh, when the Taliban had uh, occupied Afghanistan or had control to Afghanistan, I also left Afghanistan. And uh, with my children, I went to Pakistan. And uh, from Pakistan, uh, was just uh, 
trying to educate children over there in Pakistan in the refugee camps and also they had some secret school or underground literacy program inside Afghanistan for, uh, for young girls, the same situation. So after the 11th September, I returned back to Afghanistan and started to uh, shift the, the school that I established in, in Pakistan to some of the very remote area in, uh, in Afghanistan. And after that, uh, I, um, I appointed as a minister and then 2005 as a uh, the first fe uh, female governor in Bamiyan province and the Bam in Bamiyan, I served for eight and a half years. So uh, then I joined to the presidential um, election and was the, the candidate for one of the tickets. And then uh, I, I joined to the High Peace Council as a deputy chair. So I started to work on the peace um, field because I uh, thought that uh, uh, that Afghan Afghan people need more understanding and compromising and talking with each other. And I my idea was that we have to work with the people uh, within the society to, to build a fabric that people could come together. Because I believe that. The only the political peace is not the the issue. We have to build a peace within the society, within the community, and then the bottom up and top down, which is the political peace. When both of them match, it will be the real peace and sustainable peace, and will bring justice. So then I appointed as a, a, a negotiator, one of the negotiators, because out of 21 members of the negotiation team, we were four women, and I was one of them. I uh, I was in Doha with Taliban to negotiate with them for bringing peace in Afghanistan, but unfortunately that negotiation came to the end and to an, uh, any result, and collapse happened, and again I I left the country. I was not able to go to to Afghanistan. Uh, I was in Doha when collapse happened, but my family shifted to uh, U.S. I was in Germany for some times and then joined my family. And still, I have a strong connection with, uh, with uh, my sisters inside Afghanistan. And from here, we, uh, we are trying with other diaspora uh, uh, women that they are in U.S. trying to keep connection with the Afghan women inside the country, work with them, and also supporting them because we have a Women Forum for Afghanistan and three of the negotiation team, we are a, a member of that forum and trying to uh, do the advocacy with the Security Council and the state member for the uh, betterment of the life of Afghan women. Well, that is an extremely impressive um background which gives much to talk about in terms of both women and the broader issues in Afghanistan but before we come to that Tabasum can you tell us a bit about yourself and your career? Uh, thank you Lana um, and thank you for having me it's such a pleasure and honor to be here especially along such an impressive 
trailblazer for Afghan women, Habiba Sarabi. So it's, it's, it's an honor to be able to share my experiences alongside yours, Ms. Sarabi. Um, so myself, I come from perhaps a different framework. I'm more of a research and um, teaching sort of uh, practitioner. I'm currently senior advisor to the Asia Foundation. Um, I work with a number of country offices on different research products. Prior to my role here, I was in Afghanistan from August 2017 until August 10, 2021. That was the day that I got on the plane and left. I was um, in my capacity as director of policy and research of, of the portfolio there. Um, I, I remained in that portfolio until about October 2022, which is when, due to a number of issues, including donor decline in funding, I transitioned away from being Afghanistan-focused to now just being focused on many of our other country offices. Um, before joining the Asia Foundation, I was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University in, in Canada. I worked on a number of research products there that were really geared towards um, gender and security studies. So the main portfolio that I worked on was gender mainstreaming in the military and countering violent extremism. I was also a consultant with the Royal Military College working on a gender-based assessment of the training program um, for officers within the military. A lot of my training is very gender focused, gender, um, race, and, and religion focused. Um, my research, on the other hand, is gender focused, but from a more policy oriented perspective. So when I joined TAF, the Asia Foundation, and was able to sort of merge what research and teaching I had done before, and now focus it more towards building national staff capacity on research methods and developing products that could be used to inform um, decision making or to generate evidence for decision making. It was just a really nice opportunity to marry my academic past with more of a practitioner past. Let's go back to August 2021. We knew from the beginning of 2021 that the US was determined to withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, there were negotiations apparently happening all that time in Doha. Um, but then we come to August and it seems as though everything happened suddenly. Habiba, can you take us back to what was happening with you in Doha with the negotiations? So talking about the days that um, the collapse happened and before that, it's uh, to be honest, it's not easy for me to think about that. It's always remembering me the toughest day and the very, very, I mean, painful day. But anyway, uh, so after the Trika meeting, which uh, which was the third meeting, I think, because Trika Trika Plus means that it was initiated by by Russia, China, Pakistan, and also that uh, for the, uh, the Trika meeting, the EU and the US representative, uh, U, uh, UNAMO, all of them uh, attended, and in, uh, including some other uh, regional country. At the end of the Trika meeting, we recognized that the things are not going very well because uh, Taliban didn't commit for the continuation of uh, of the of the talk, and they always made uh, excuse for that. On that time, we didn't we did understand that things are not going very well, and they are not committed for uh, uh, for negotiation. So 
the team was very, very uh, sad and disappointed. We, we were waiting for uh, another team, um, I mean, high-level team to come to Doha and directly uh, sit with the Taliban and talk about the issue and to finalize it. But at the same time, we were waiting that the president should make a decision uh, or some speech or something. It was on the 14th of August. Uh, so all of us, we were uh, just going from one room to other room to listen that what's going on and what will be happen. But uh, on the 15th, so just it was a kind of rumor that we have got from our connection in Kabul, for example, uh, for, through the media, through the social media. And we were busy with some meeting with the support group or peace support group and the, lob uh, the lobby of the hotel. I asked from my daughter, uh, he, uh, she was working with the UNDP in Kabul. And I asked what's going on in Kabul. And she said that things are not going well, uh, but I'm going back to home because I was worried about her. And she was on her way to back to home. And I have heard that there is a firing in, inside of, uh, in Kabul uh, near to defense ministry. When I asked her, he, uh, she said, no, there is not any firing at the ministry. I'm close to the ministry, but the situation is not good. And people are very, I mean, uh, a kind of panic. Uh, situation was in Kabul. So finally, uh, at the end of the day, we, we found that the president left the country and uh, everybody's very shaken by her recollections. She'll come back in a minute. Tabison, maybe you want to slightly take over here because you were in Kabul at that time and tell us what it was like from the beginning of the month. So it was, it was, it was interesting. We were aware that, um, that Habiba and, uh, and others were in Doha and these negotiations were ongoing. We were also aware that the Taliban were encroaching um, and getting closer and closer to Kabul, but we were always under the impression, and by we, I mean my colleagues and I, um, and just, general um some of the other internationals that I was that we were that were sort of part of our network our assumption was that oh they won't be here soon it's it's going to take time by the time they get to Nangarhar it'll take more time it's it's not going to fall apart so quickly so there wasn't really that much panic early on in early August at the same time, a lot of my colleagues had left, so I was one of the few international colleagues to remain behind. And the only reason why I remained behind was because we had a field work, uh, we had a project that I was managing, and I wanted to make sure that field work um, happened successfully. So for me, the priority was making sure we got the data. It wasn't so much all of this other noise because for me, just the reality of the Taliban coming that quickly wasn't, it just wasn't there. So we're very much obsessed with this, field work um, and implementing it and making sure that everything rolled out according to our plan, or at least I was. As we got closer to August 10th, uh, when I left, there was an incident near my guest house uh, where I was staying. So I ended up relocating to a, a more secure facility to, to, to a hotel. 
the hotel was near the airport and at the time leading up to the day that I left decided it was a good time to test out the air defense system near the airport. What they forgot to do was notify the international community or those that were in certain networks. So for somebody staying at the hotel, like I was, we thought we were under attack. So it was a very traumatic, a very hard time. Um, we, we found out later that it was just the air defense system that was being tested out and everyone was safe, but it's, it was still a very hard time to reflect on. Um, I wanna make the joke, um, and perhaps it's not a very sensitive joke, but we never got the memo. <laughs> we didn't get the memo that they were gonna test out the air defense system. So knowing that the Taliban were getting closer and then all of a sudden hearing all of these, um, all of this noise that sounded like IEDs and explosions coming closer and closer, we didn't really know what to think. But anyway, that's, so at the time, um, in addition to that noise, we were, also scrambling to, to get on planes, to get on flights. So while all this was happening, a lot of countries, including Canada, uh, were just lifting up their COVID restrictions and the entry requirements. And even though I am a Canadian citizen, having lived there for most of my life, it was very hard for me to get a ticket because in between the booking agent and the airline, there was some miscommunication over. So there were about three days where it was just pure panic and not knowing how I was going to get out of the country. And then the moment I got the ticket, I was in the airport and at the airport, um, I found out that the Taliban had left Nangarhar and they had passed through Panjshir and they were heading towards Kabul. But by the time I arrived home in Canada, they had arrived at the gates. So it happened that quickly within my, I think it was just like a two-day transit from Kabul to Canada that they went from Nangarhar to Panjshir to settling there in Kabul. Not just at the gates, actually in and around the city. I remember some of my colleagues um, and friends were sending me pictures, the ones who were kind of still hanging around, were sending me pictures of the chaos, sending me videos of the lines at the banks, the lines at the different um, travel agencies, the lines at the different embassies, people scrambling for last, it was just, it was pandemonium, it was chaos. And my heart broke because I share Habiba's um, pain and thinking about friends and family who were still there. Indeed. Um, thank you for sharing that very emotional and very descriptive moment um, in the fall of Kabul. And of course, as you point out, you yourself are from Afghan descent. Um, Habiba, we now know what's happening in Kabul. What was happening in Doha at the same time? Let's go back to your description. Uh, so after that, in Doha, nothing happened. Uh, of course, we just, uh, when we heard that we uh, understood that um, the president left the country and there is chaos in, in Afghanistan. Uh, so everybody was worried about the family and the, the future, what will be, what, what's going on. Because, for example, myself, 
because my family, my especially I was worried about my daughter and uh, she had some job in the government because she was the deputy minister of finance on the policy level and uh, she was well known. And uh, my, my son, my husband, all of them, they were in Kabul. I was worried about them. And so the, all the chaos, Tabassum uh, mentioned about at the airport because uh, my family and my daughter, I mean, made decision to leave the country on that time. And uh, after, on the 16th of August, they went to the airport. And after that, they recognized that what's going on at the airport. It was a rush of the people. And so firing. So uh, we uh, got the visa from Germany, 10 of us. And on um, 8th of September, I left uh, Doha and went to Turkey uh, because my son was in Izmir in Turkey. I joined uh, him for uh, two months because I was really very, I was shocked, to be honest. And I wanted to share this my moment with my son. So we were sharing what was happening in Afghanistan, especially step by step. I was following my daughter. After two months, I joined to my friends in Germany. Well, first of all, ladies, thank you so very much for sharing in detail these very emotional uh, moments. But I think it gives everybody a much better sense of the fall of Afghanistan in many ways, not to mention the fall of Kabul. Let's try and think now, how unexpected was it? Um, Tabasum, you're going back into missions, you're there in August 2021. Did you not have any sense that there was a problem? I believe where you're negotiating, did you not really think that this is gonna end really badly? Not so quickly. We didn't think it, it would happen that quickly. That was the problem. We thought we had time. I thought I could, you know, successfully wrap up this this project and then get on a plane. And even then, we thought when we when I evacuated, I, I left all of my items there. I, I lived in Afghanistan for seven years, and I only took two suitcases with me. So I, I left everything there with the intention of coming back in a couple months in January at the latest. So no, we didn't, we knew it was going to happen, but we thought we had more time to prepare. I thought I had more time to prepare. And then when it was happening and it was obvious I needed to, to, to leave, it wasn't so obvious that I wouldn't come back. There was just so much uncertainty around around everything. It, it, I still can't believe how quickly everything unraveled. Reba, did you have that same sense? Yeah, I agree with Tabassum. So no one uh, could, uh, the expectation to the collapse could happen so quickly, it was not something that we expected. Uh, so in Doha, there was another idea that this uh, some leader, for example, on the top leader, for for example, President Karzai and some other will come to Doha and will negotiate directly with Mullah or the top leader of, of Taliban. And there will be some deal. For example, uh, one one of the deal it, uh, which was going around and talking about that, that maybe there will be a 
kind of uh, interim government between two parties, the Republic and the Taliban. And that interim government, of course, there will be a council and uh, this council will lead uh, for, for election, for the new constitution and everything. But I mean, when the, the president left the country, everything just, uh, I mean, collapsed. So we didn't know, we didn't expect that the collapse could be happen so quickly. It was uh, really shocking for everyone. And um, we keep talking about it and the collapse. I think that for people who aren't Afghani and weren't there, then what we're really talking about is the complete collapse of the Afghan government and the Afghan security forces, together with the withdrawal of the international forces. So, Habiba, is this a reversal entirely to what there was before 2001? No, that I mean, there are a lot of difference between 2001 and during 90s uh, when the Mujahideen came, because in 2001 there was a kind of, uh, I mean, interfering with a NATO coalition in in Afghanistan. And uh, the Northern Alliance also uh, joined with them. So it was different. Even on 2001, I was in Pakistan. I was not in, in Afghanistan, but things, my husband was in, in Afghanistan at that time. And according to his story, that it was people were happy that, that because they were, people were suffered from Taliban oppressive. So people were happy in even helping the NATO coalition and the U.S. Uh, military to avoid Taliban from Afghanistan, from Kabul uh, and the big cities. But uh, I mean, August, it was different. There was a system, there was government, there was international community. And uh, so all the forces were there. All the institution was there were there, the Ministry of Defense, uh, Ministry of Interior, and the system was there. So that's why it was, I mean, quite different. But maybe equally shocking, therefore, or more shocking, because there was a whole system there, but it seemed to just collapse immediately. Yeah, that's why it was really shocking, because the system, when, I mean, when the process, the negotiation process of the peace talk started, it was my question. Most of the time I was asking from Zalmay Khalilzad that if the U.S. troop will leave the country without any plan B, so there will be a chaos. The, uh, uh, the history of 90s, I was sharing that history that, okay, maybe like 90s, it will be collapse and it will be, and he's, he was saying no, because they there is the international community with you and they are existing. You have the system, you have the military and everything. But of course, there are a lot of ambiguity uh, uh, for the why, the, I mean, all the military, they uh, left handover or, or didn't want to fight with Taliban. It was the end of the day, but there, were, uh, there was a lot of uh, propaganda uh, uh, to the military as well, because of that, they they lost their morale to uh, to fight. 
so it was the case. Indeed, it seemed to have been the case. Tavisam, let me take you back, though, to the question of, do you think what's happening now in Afghanistan is an attempt to take it back to the 90s? Especially in terms of the situation of human rights, the situation of women, of disability, of, of basically of quality of life in every sense. I don't have the lived experience to compare it to, to the 90s, but I can certainly comment on how brave of a humanitarian disaster it is right now. There's, I believe it's something like 97% of Afghans are, are living in poverty. The level of humanitarian assistance is declining rapidly. It's declining for 2023. It's projected to be a billion dollars less than it was last year. The ban on women's education and employment is extremely damaging, um, not only, of course, from most civil liberties and human rights perspective, but also from an economic perspective. The trickle-down effects of that ban, plus the general um, malaise across the country, like there, there's a massive brain drain. And this is in addition to the brain drain that occurred in, in 2021. So this includes Afghans who remained behind the limited Afghans who have the education and who have the capacity to contribute to the country's economic development are going to be further pushed out. And that leaves very few who are able to success, who are able to contribute to managing the country. There's also or a very dire impact on healthcare, on education, we know that, on employment opportunities, especially for women, we also know that. So I think the country is going to, to continue unraveling. And we also have to consider the effects of climate change on what's happening. And perhaps this is unique from what happened in the 90s. There's more reports of floods, avalanches, a whole series of flash floodings, earthquakes, drought, we, we haven't seen this level of sort of natural disasters in Afghanistan, not certainly not in the 90s. So I think this, this time around, there's new challenges and those new challenges are going to be something that we haven't yet seen. And unless the international community mobilizes or continues to mobilize more support and not only in the form of humanitarian aid, but perhaps more intentional ways of giving sustainable humanitarian aid. So I think more needs to be done now than was done in the past. I'm not really able to compare the situation to, to the 90s. I, I think Habiba is better able to do that than I, but I can certainly say from a numbers and overall humanitarian perspective, we're not really, we're seeing something that's completely different. Habiba, in what way do you see it being different to the 90s? So there are some similarity, but not too many, but there are so many differences. First of all, I want to uh, highlight one of the issues, that 1996, when the Taliban or took the power from Mujahideen, the Mujahideen was also, it was a chaos in Afghanistan. So it was a kind of civil war, the Mujahideen group fought with each other, and, and a lot of people uh, killed and many displaced and uh, many left the country. So it was really uh, a chaos in Afghanistan. The panic came, of course, when the Taliban entered to Kabul. But before that, also, the situation was not good. Uh, 
But humanitarian wise, uh, yeah, I agree with which Tabassum mentioned. This uh, humanitarian situation is worse today, even from the past, because especially I'm contacting with the people, they are uh, uh, reaching out to me that talking about the drought and the shortage of the drinkable water. It is now it's really uh, addition to the poverty, the level of poverty and the, uh, the system is, is not servicing or it's not a kind of system. It's, it's I mean, the Taliban regime is, is not servicing the people. And, but uh, com comparing, for example, the women's situation, it is even tougher for women because it's a change from a democratic process. Uh, uh, of course, we had uh, so many mistakes. We had a lot of problem uh, with the system, especially one of them, for example, the corruption, the nepotism, the, with the parliament members, with the government, with, uh, with the military. But there was a system. There was something that the way forward was looking good, looking beautiful especially women had the choice to study, to go abroad, to for higher education. We had the, um, uh, at least 11 uh, women that they were deputy minister. So, and also women in parliament and everything. But now it's, uh, of course, it's very tough for women. They are suffering. Uh, let me to talk that they, they are suffering because they saw the all uh, the beautiful days that they had and now it's really very tough for them to to accept this regime people looking from the outside i think there was something very baffling repeatedly which is why does a afghanistan find it so difficult to rule itself other than in extremes i think it's rather important to try and address that issue for our international listener i'll ask you first habiba because you have spent so much time in your life and you spoke before about trying to do a bottom down or rather a bottom up rather than top down process but from the outside it really does seem to be intensely uh, baffling as to why afghanistan finds it so so difficult to to uh, move into a peaceful coexistence mm -hmm. It is really very difficult to talk about that. There are several reasons. From my point of view, uh, according to my knowledge that I have gone through the history, so one is the external reason or matter, which is the uh, situation in Afghanistan, which is between the uh, at the middle of, of Asia, and uh, unfortunately, Afghanistan is the victim of the uh, cold, was the victim of cold war on that time between the West and in East, between Russia and the US and, and NATO. And uh, also the proxy war that is going on in Afghanistan. It's a conflict zone between uh, China, India, Pakistan, these are the, the main uh, issue or the main topic or the main reason for all this con uh, conflict. So at the, uh, the outcome of that is that, uh, unfortunately, through the history, 
people of Afghanistan were watching uh, the international community or the foreigner to to decide for them. There should be a kind of movement, a kind of uh, mobilization uh, from inside the country. If the people from inside the country will make decision, so uh, that decision uh, will bring Afghanistan to the right path. Tabasim, you deal less with geopolitics, but you have dealt a lot with Afghan people and yourself are Afghan. What is your take on this issue? I think asking the Afghan people, those living within the country and those in the diaspora, such as Habiba and myself, asking us, what do we think that the real problems are? Why are we so defragmented? Is it identity politics? Is it because there's a resource curse? Is it regionalism? What is it? really need to identify um, what the Afghan voices, diaspora and within the country are, are seeing as the problem. And then looking at solutions towards addressing those problems. If, it's, if, if it means mobilizing from within the country, you need data for that. You need, you need information for that. So doing more research on what the Afghan diaspora and Afghans within the country their perceptions of of what the challenges are, their perceptions of what the real problems um, are, and their suggestions for what solutions could be. So you you've got a number of challenges that have historically plagued the country, be it its location, its its resources, it's even from within. There's there's quite a bit of diversity in, in views and perceptions. Again, that's probably not an exhaustive list. There's more, I'm certain. But maybe here's where we need more research. Maybe we need to just field that question and find out what it is. Ladies, we're moving towards the end of this fascinating, fascinating discussion. Um, I just wanted to ask each of you to end it very quickly. Um, if there was one thing that could be done now what would it be for each of you? Habiba. Nation building is, is something that we have to do it because we have to put uh, our problem on the table. And after that, talk about that. And I uh, totally agree with Tabasum John that there should be research, but uh, this researcher and think tank, they have to bring uh, Afghan people together that they, they should talk together and share their problem and uh, the gaps. And uh, on the top of that, we have to do, to work on uh, the nation building. Habasim. I concur with Habiba, it's using evidence-informed decisions. And if it starts with nation building, then that's an excellent start. But making ensuring that it's evidence-informed and ensuring that the diaspora, as well as Afghans from within the country are included in those discussions. How would you go about doing this physically? I'm rather fascinated. There are ways to mobilize voices of the diaspora. Um, there are ways, there are various networks that you could use to reach out to them, to solicit feedback, to be doing an online survey with them. It's easier to use online surveys with, with diaspora from outside of the country. From within the country, you can collect data very easily through the use of telephone surveys. You can use different methodological approaches to make sure you're getting a very diverse sample. The hard thing is establishing the right advisory board to agree on those questions 
to agree on the methodology and to agree on what to do with that research afterwards. It can't just be one person saying, I'm going to do this survey and I'm going to do it my way. It has to be, there has to be consensus around it for it to be truly reflective of the Afghan diaspora and of Afghans within the country, it needs to be done collaboratively with a number of people. So there are certainly ways to do it from a methodological perspective. We just need to have buy-in and, and support for the idea, but it's certainly possible. Habiba, would you be willing to help launch this survey? Oh yeah, oh yeah, sure. So especially to be honest, I am very in favor of young generation. This young generation will make a change. I'm sure that they will make a change. When we left the country, which was awful, and uh, but when the young women stood in Kabul and, and shout and raised their voice, it was the hope for the future of Afghanistan. Well... That is such an optimistic note upon which to end this deeply fascinating and emotional episode. Um, and we very much hope that it will indeed launch the survey that is so necessary to move Afghanistan ahead. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Habiba Sarabi and Tabasam Aksir. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on our podcast platform. Leave us a five star on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels. So reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and even TikTok. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel and my friend and producer Florence Ferrando and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation. <laughs>